Hi, I'm Connie Loises. And this is Alex Gove. And this is Strictly VC Download. Hi, happy Friday, everyone. Uh, I guess we are all wrapping up another busy week, one that saw dropped mask mandates by U.S. airlines, a slowdown at Netflix that caused its shares to fall off a cliff, and the two-month-long Russia-Ukraine war, which just seems to take one troubling twist after another. Of course, you are mostly here for the spicy tech news, and we're going to wheel you through a couple of this week's stories before getting to our featured guest, Sarah Tavel, a venture capitalist and general partner with 27-year-old Benchmark Capital. Benchmark, with offices in Menlo Park in San Francisco, is now among the smallest funds in Silicon Valley in terms of assets under management and the size of its team, as its rivals have ballooned in size and scope, and Benchmark has stubbornly resisted the same path. Still, it remains a top venture firm in the U.S. thanks to decades of solid returns and its continuing impact on the founding teams who work with it. And Tavel, who is coming up on her fifth year anniversary with Benchmark, is one of the drivers of that ongoing strategy. In this interview, we talk with her about why Benchmark operates as it does. We also chatted about consumer businesses and the cryptocurrency ecosystem and where the two meet going forward. But first, the news. The Wall Street Journal has an interesting story today about the rise of crypto hacks. Since August, analytics firm Chainalysis reports that there have been 37 hacks in 38 weeks that have drained about $2.9 billion worth of cryptocurrencies versus $3.2 billion stolen for all of 2021. The journal story focuses on Beanstalk, a stablecoin project that was hacked this Sunday to the tune of $182 million, effectively bankrupting the project. Like several recent attacks, the exploit leveraged two characteristics of crypto projects to work its magic, DAOs, or Decentralized Autonomous Organizations, and governance tokens. First, the hacker purchased voting control of Beanstalk by borrowing $1 billion of different stablecoins with something called a flash loan, an ultra-short loan available to crypto users. Next, they pushed through a proposal to insert code that would donate money to Ukraine, The only thing is, the money actually went to the hacker's bank account. After repaying the flash loan, the hacker made a profit of approximately $76 million. All of which gives rise to the following questions. First, why would the hacker bother to pay back the loan? Second, is this a crime? After all, Max Galka, chief executive of crypto forensics firm Elementus, notes that everything this guy did was consistent with the code. And finally, why would anyone feel confident in launching or investing in a new cryptocurrency these days? Theft is rampant, in no small part because the code is open source and can be poured over by criminals. Code that has been audited is still vulnerable. And, as John Wallace, the chief insurance officer of the venture-backed startup Vouch, told Connie in a story yesterday, insurance policies for Web3 startups very specifically exclude digital assets. Still interested in investing in cryptocurrencies? Fortune favors the bold indeed. The world's richest man continues to make headlines with his quixotic pursuit of Twitter. Yesterday, Elon Musk announced that he has secured funding to launch a tender offer for Twitter. The money consists of $26.6 billion in loans backed by Morgan Stanley, Bank of America, and Barclays, and $21 billion from Musk himself. Musk's plan carries considerable personal risk. 
Musk will not only have to put up $62 billion in Tesla stock as collateral, he will also have to sell off stock in either Tesla, SpaceX, or Boring Company, or more likely all three, in order to come up with the $21 billion. And his plan carries substantial risk for Twitter as well. First, there is the problem of all of the debt that Musk would be saddling on the company. Then there is the price. Twitter's board is rumored to be looking for a share price in the 60s. And now, yet another problem visited upon Twitter by Musk. Angry Republicans. According to letters shared with CNBC today, House Republicans have asked Twitter board chairman Brett Taylor and other members of the board to preserve any messages from official or personal accounts, including through encryption software, that relate to Twitter's consideration of Musk's offer. The letter could signal that House Republicans intend to investigate Twitter's treatment of Musk if they gain control of the House come November. Good times, said no Twitter board member ever. Up next, Connie's conversation with Sarah Tavel of Benchmark. But first, a word from our sponsor. As a founder, you're told to get arm's length feedback on your idea, but it's hard to find credible sources of that feedback, and you're probably busy building a business. Introducing Tegas for startups. Tegas provides early stage teams with insights to make better decisions. Use Tegas to accelerate your path to product market fit, to learn about market dynamics from industry veterans, or to understand how other builders have tackled market expansion, fundraising, or any other challenge. Try Tegas today, totally free, at tegas.com slash strictlyvc. That's T-E-G-U-S dot com slash strictlyvc. And now our interview with Sarah Tavel, who studied philosophy at Harvard before becoming a product manager at Pinterest then joining Bessemer Venture Partners and, in 2017, finding herself poached by the storied venture firm Benchmark, where she is one of just five general partners. Here's that conversation. We're so excited to have Sarah Tavel here today. As many listeners may know, Sarah is a general partner at Benchmark, the storied 27-year-old venture firm. She is also the first and only general partner at Benchmark who happens to be a woman. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's been too long since we talked. My goal is not to talk about gender diversity with you today, but I do wonder if it's something that you think continues to be an issue or whether you think the venture industry is making progress at a reasonable rate. And I only ask because two seconds ago, I was reading a piece in the information about diversity. They'd surveyed 100 firms about this, and I thought the findings were sort of interesting. Just 12 of 100 firms that they talked to did not at this point have at least one female partner, and that's down from 41 firms three years ago. So that's something. Look, like all, not just gender, all underrepresented minorities, it's still a constant push in in this ecosystem. And there's, you know, there's a bunch of reasons why it is the way it is. I mean, a lot of it catalyzed all raised, which I was a part of starting, I don't know how many years ago now. And that work continues. And I don't know if it'll ever end. I mean, it's a constant push. I guess I sort of feel disappointed at times, but also optimistic at other times. I mean, of course, it's hard because as the information noted, a lot of 
general partners at least stay on through the length of a firm and the duration is usually 10 years. So that sort of slows things down or creates a frustratingly slow pace in some ways. I also wanted to ask you quickly about Blake Robbins, an investor who recently joined Benchmark from Ludlow Ventures in Detroit. He joined as a principal. Am I right in thinking that Benchmark doesn't usually bring in principals? Yeah, no, that's right. Blake, today is day one. So you have good timing for the question. People don't realize this. I was talking to a founder the other day and I mentioned that we were at the time it was five general partners and that's the entire benchmark investing team as of last week. And people don't realize how small of a partnership we are because for most other firms, they have to multiply by 20, if not higher to get to the full breadth of their team. But over the 27 years, as you said, of benchmarks history, there's probably been a handful of times where we've brought on somebody who we just have gotten to know in the ecosystem and find them to be super talented and think that they'll add a new dimension to the group. And so Blake is somebody whom I've gotten to know for several years, what feels like several years now. And kind of as things happen, a bunch of the group at Benchmark got to know, and we all just thought such incredible things about him and that it would be fun to work together in in a closer capacity. And so we're lucky to have him agree and join the group. And so today is day number one. And please, you know, everybody listening, view him as an extension of us right now. That's really great. You know, it's funny. I happened to look at some old notes when I saw that he was coming on board and I had talked to Jonathan Triest, who founded Ludlow, about him yeah. when he brought him on as a junior partner at Ludlow. And he was like, this guy is brilliant. He's going to be advancing beyond me at some point. I did wonder if it means you're interested in drumming up more deal flow in the Midwest. Is Blake out here now or is he in the Detroit area? There's no intentionality around geography. He's still living in Detroit. He's here today. And he's going to be spending a lot more time in the Bay Area. That's great. I did want to talk to you, as you know, uh, primarily today about crypto, because I remember that you led Benchmark's first crypto-related investment, writing a check into Chainalysis, a company that had helped crack the famous Mt. Gox case. I'd written about it when you first funded it. Now it works with many of the world's financial institutions to help detect fraud and prevent money laundering. I'm wondering, among other things, did that lead you into the world of crypto or were you already very interested and this was just the first company that kind of fit your various criteria? I would love to claim that Chainalysis was Benchmark's first crypto investment, but that wouldn't be true. We bought Bitcoin in the fund, gosh, I want to say 2013. No one beat me up if that year is wrong, but it was early. And then after that, made a number of other investments in the space. We invested in Zappo. We invested in Bitstamp and and Pantera, which was one of the early crypto funds. Yes. And then it was kind of me joining the firm with fresh enthusiasm for crypto that I think may have brought back. You know, when I was at Greylock, I actually had already caught the crypto bug. My mom's from Argentina. She immigrated in the 1970s during the hyperinflation in in Argentina. And so grew up with stories of how crazy that is. And Bitcoin was a story, obviously, in Argentina at the time. And then, of course, like many people read about Ethereum and my mind was blown by just the idea that you could have these self-executing smart contracts on chain in this decentralized infrastructure. And so when I joined Benchmark, one of the things that I was so excited about was the idea that I could be more of an athlete and spend more time not just going down the, the path of consumer marketplaces, which was where I was spending most of my time at Greylock at the time, but really looked more broadly than that. 
And so I went all in on crypto. I was reading everything I could, hosting white paper, reading parties, meeting as many people as I could. And then through that, I was lucky to meet actually Katie Hahn, who at the time hadn't yet joined Andreessen. She was on the board of Coinbase. And I remember talking to her about some of the work that she had done at the DOJ. And she mentioned that one of the tools that she had used on the Mt. Gox and Silk Road cases was Chainalysis. And so like the good little VC that I am, I wrote down the name and cold emailed Michael Groninger, the CEO of Chainalysis. And it just clicked. It was one of those meetings where you realize that there's so much more under the surface of the company than I had recognized and so much more opportunity than I had anticipated. And so that led to my first benchmark investment. That's so great. It really resonated with me as soon as I was pitched on that company. How many crypto companies have you backed at this point? And also, what is your newest bet? So uh, as a firm, the other investment that we've announced since Chainalysis is so rare. I don't know if are you familiar with yes, 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 yes. In um, France. Yes, in France. Just an incredible company. Just one of those teams that you meet and you're just walk away thinking that the team is really special. I think it's still an untold story. I've made another investment in the gaming space that's not announced that has some crypto flair or Web3 flair, as I like to think. And so that's the pace. Again, we're five general partners, each partner investing in one or two investments per year. So we are a scalpel in the investments that we make. Right, right, right. And so we're just for people who or listening and don't know, is basically a company where you play and win digital collectible trading cards tied to soccer leagues. Yeah. So imagine a fantasy sport game around soccer, but in order to play the game, you need to own the cards of the players that you're going to play in the game. Mm -hmm. And those cards themselves are NFTs. And so you can have an economy around them And as you would imagine, the value of the cards fluctuate depending on how the player themselves perform in the real world game. And do they have their own blockchain? It's on Ethereum. Oh, it is. Okay. Interesting. So Sarah, obviously in the news every day, crypto dominates. There's so much debate about how real or not so-called Web3 is. It's completely on the fence. There's also so much Mm -hmm. that I don't understand still, but I understand the promise is a world where you've got these communities of users who have say over product development and governance. But to Jack Dorsey's famous point, I think he was tweeting about this last December, a lot of VCs own stakes in these companies, which raise questions about how decentralized they really are. And also, even if they become more decentralized over time, and dilute the VCs, it's really hard to innovate when you've got so many stakeholders with a say in how the sausage gets made. So why do you believe in Web3? There's a lot to unpack there. Let me, uh, <laughs> that is a typical me, Connie question. I'm sorry. Yeah, sorry. no, let me let me do my best. So first of all, I think it's helpful to take a step back. So, something that I've been reflecting on a little bit is that Crypto started in a moment that was oppositional against centralized entities, right? You Mm -hmm. know, it was the banks that were being bailed out. And now so much of the conversation that you hear on Twitter, as an example, is shaking the fist at our centralized overlords at Facebook. Social media, right? Yeah, social media brands. And that kind of origin story, decentralization was the race that you are running. Mm -hmm. The idea of decentralization was completely intertwined with the idea of creating value for users. Mm -hmm. And it created the crypto ecosystem that we have today, where you have this incredible breadth and diversity of, of layer one solutions, Bitcoin, 
Ethereum, Solana being the ones that are probably the most Mm -hmm. at the forefront of of people's minds. And then all the protocols that are built on top of them. Decentralization is, again, the end in itself. The whole point of this crypto infrastructure, in a way, is to be decentralized because of all the benefits that come with decentralization. And that's different than what I think of as Web3. People talk about Web3 and they almost use the word Web3 as if it was crypto. You could say crypto and then Web3 in the same sentence and mean the same thing. But to me, they're actually very distinct, which is that you have crypto and that is the orientation, the focus on this decentralized infrastructure and then all the financial incentives, the tokens, the tokenomics that you need in order to coordinate all of that all those decentralized entities and the people behind them. But then Web3, decentralization isn't the end in itself anymore. To me, decentralization are really this kind of the crypto infrastructure that we have now. I think of it as a new palette for consumer builders to build new consumer experiences where the decentralized infrastructure is now a means to the end of building value for a consumer. But it doesn't mean that you want to go as decentralized as possible in order to create value for a consumer. Like I agree with you, when I was building product at Pinterest, the idea of having a discord with all of our users and every employee in the company opining on every feature that we want to build, that would really be a slog. It's not the way to build consumer properties. If you look around at the consumer names that get mentioned, the Sorares, the Axies, the OpenSeas, these are companies that are actually centralized companies that are built on a decentralized infrastructure that take advantage of this decentralized infrastructure as a means to creating more value. And so it's a little bit more like when the iPhone came out and then You had GPS, and then eventually you had a camera, and new app developers, new consumer builders could use this new infrastructure, this new hardware device that they had that was Mm -hmm. built by people who had a very specialized skill set. You know, the people who built the chips and the systems architecture and all the component parts to make the iPhone the incredible device it is. But then you have a different discipline of builder. That is the person who builds the consumer UX, the Kevin Systrom's and the Mark Zuckerberg's of the world. And that is a different discipline. That's a different skill set. And you have to embrace something that's far broader than tokenomics, really, in order to build these consumer companies. Consumers are not coin operated. We have so many more needs, belonging, <laughs> vanity, the seven deadly sins, you can mm-hmm. go down mm-hmm. them or Maslow's hierarchy. And so that is different. And so if I had a crystal ball, what I would predict is that we're going to start to see more and more of a bifurcation of Web3 from crypto and Web3 being a revolution of Web2, not just an evolution of crypto. That's great. I really appreciate that overview. Where do you stand then on companies built on decentralized autonomous organizations, DAOs? What role will they play? You know, like so much in crypto, there's it's one of these concepts that is expansive in its potential and Mm -hmm. provocative in, in that potential. But I also think that the use cases for which a DAO makes the most sense should start off a little bit narrower than where people are using it for. Back to my bifurcation with the crypto companies, Mm. 
you have companies that are decentralized already, and they almost as a regulatory imperative have to continue down the path of decentralization. If you're building a crypto company, you are a decentralization maxi, you know? Mm -hmm. And so a DAO is a further manifestation of that decentralized ethos. And, and I think there's no question that there's tremendous value with the idea of having these organizations that are economically aligned to continue to build and push forward these the protocol development that's happening and needs to continue to happen. Then there's a lot of experiments on the fringes. You have things like Friends with Benefits, and then you have things like the Constitution DAO, which even though it wasn't successful in what it wanted to achieve, I actually think it's a pretty good use case for a DAO where you have a very specific goal in mind, which is to purchase something in this case. You know, it, it was an offline thing, but you see plenty of collectives that are purchasing NFTs as an example. And it's a great way of aggregating on-chain funds and making decisions collectively. And then there's the examples like we talked about before, where if you're building a, a Web3 consumer app, of course, you want to incorporate user feedback. You want to build with your community, especially because your community in Web3 will often be very economically incented and aligned. But if you put everything through a process in your DAO, it's going to take a long time to build the right. things that you need to build. And I just think not throwing the baby out with the bathwater in terms of the value of centralization a centralized entity lets you move really quickly and build something, the consumer products that are pretty unique and hard to build. Sarah, I also just wondered how you think about the downsides of crypto that people bring up. Proof of work blockchains have environmental problems. Proof of stake blockchains have their own problems. Mm -hmm. Is that something that you spend a lot of time thinking about or worrying about? It's not. What I would say is I think there's a lot of noise there's a lot of FUD right now, and there's a lot of incredible progress being made by the people working on these various blockchains. What sounds good in a soundbite, talking about the cost of proof of work as an example, constraining how you think about the cost of a transaction to something that is just very visible, which is electric cost. It's just a very narrow way of thinking of things. I think that that thought is going to continue to evolve and then you see all of the incredible work happening on so many chains to continue to move the ball forward on proof of stake, specifically Ethereum being the biggest one to make progress on this front. But it remains to be seen what the second order effects are going to be of that move to proof of stake. There are a lot of questions on whether it creates a more centralized blockchain over time or another kind of security questions. But I trust the people working on those problems more than my own. I also wanted to ask you, Sarah, about NFTs. You're talking about so rare. Obviously, a lot of people think of them today as digital pieces of art or media. They're immutable in the sense that they're tied to a record of who owns what. They can't be copied. But people wonder about them because they can be shared widely. They sometimes seem silly. I mean, I keep thinking that there's going to be a lot of use cases that make sense other than what we're seeing right now, like tracking real estate instead of tracking a picture of a cartoon monkey. How do you think about NFTs three, four, five years from now? What do you think we're going to be using them for? Yeah, I think we're in absolute kind of a skeuomorphic phase in NFTs. You know, one of the first attributes of 
what NFTs are is this idea of digital scarcity. And so NFTs are truly a great example of digital scarcity. And that's why you see things like these collectibles and a profile photo uh, the PFPs, as they call them. And look, I remember when I first started to think about NFTs, thinking I didn't really get it. I understand the idea of digital scarcity, but if you can just copy and paste, anybody can use the image, then what's the point? And then I started to feel more and more like I really wanted a crypto punk. And I didn't just want the picture of a crypto punk, I wanted to actually own it. And it was an emotional connection with that idea that was the aha moment for me of, oh, yes, there is something very different with what an NFT is. The current generation of NFTs that are primarily these either collectibles or profile photos, it's a bit much. I think there's certainly an exuberance around it that I think will die down. And I look forward to that because it is such a narrow use of what an NFT is it's this digital token that can have so many attributes to it. I think the next generation of NFTs that we're seeing, there's a couple different classes. There's obviously what's happening in gaming. And so these are things that you can create or earn in a game. There have always been this idea almost of an NFT within a game. It's just that it was within the closed ecosystem of that game. And so now with the decentralized infrastructure, you're going to start to have the opportunity to really open that up and to see the things that you've earned in your own wallet and trade those things or sell them on OpenSea or whatever it may be. So that's the first thing that you'll start to see. And the second thing you see companies like Royal that are innovating also in what's possible with an NFT. And does it give you access to future cash flow for a song? Does it give you access to the artist itself? Does it give you access to a community? And so there's so many more things that we're going to start to see emerge when people use NFTs. We have to stop thinking of it as just a JPEG and start really using all that it's capable of. And that's what I'm so excited to see in this next generation of Web3. Yeah. And just for listeners who may not be familiar, Royal is an NFT music rights startup. Raised $55 million back in November. I know that Katie is very excited about that company. I don't know if she's on the board, just as sort of a feel, but related. Would you be interested in a music rights startup akin to Royal? I don't think you're going to back her in that one. No, we're not. I, 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 I won't comment on that. Okay. Speaking of Katie, I have to ask, what do you make of the rise of dedicated crypto funds? You mentioned Pantera, which Dan Moorhead had started back in 2011 or 12 or 13. And I know Benchmark was an early LP there. We had Polychain, Capital, we've got Paradigm, we have Andreessen Horowitz and now Sequoia. And now Katie has one. Do you think it makes sense to blend these types of investments with more traditional venture investments as Benchmark is doing now or over time, the dedicated funds make more sense? Well, first of all, I'm so excited for Katie. You know, look, I, I think it goes back to the bifurcation that I articulated. The first generation investing in the space was in these protocols, in these blockchains. And just like I wouldn't invest in a hardware company because I don't know a lot about building hardware, investing in protocols and DeFi is very much a specialized domain. And I also think that investing in consumer-facing products and founders is its own specialty. 
And it's useful to understand the the underlying infrastructure and understand how people in the network are being incentivized and motivated, the, the pluses and minuses of the various options that consumer builders have to work through now to figure out where they're going to build their experience. But at the end of the day, I actually think that the experience of a firm that has built enduring consumer social networks is its own specialized discipline that's going to be more and more relevant in this new Web3 world. I think that bifurcation will persist. And it's why I'm focused on Web3. I'll confess I'm not focused on crypto at the protocol level. So for Benchmark, it continues to make sense. And you are not leaving Benchmark then to start your own crypto fund. (laughs) I'm only half kidding. I sat down with Katie for a Strictly VC event in November. And three weeks later, bam, she left Anderson Horowitz to launch her own fund. And it's worth saying that part of the reason why people have to launch crypto-focused funds when they are investing in the protocol level is because when you're buying tokens, technically... My understanding is it's a passive investment. It's the same as if we were to buy public equities. If we buy public equities or secondary transaction or tokens, there's a certain percentage of your fund that you're allowed to have in those types of passive investments in order to not need to register. And once you cross that threshold, you have to register. Our model at Benchmark is that we view the work that we do the active work that we do with the com- with the companies that we invest in, with the founders that we back, to be our product. And so we orient towards the types of companies that have to build organizations and hire people and think through that type of problem in order to create the experience that they want to create. And so those are the companies and those are the founders that we want to work with and align with. But I guess if more of them are dealing in the world of tokens, would that mean that Benchmark would at some point potentially have to consider becoming a registered investment advisor? It sounds like you're saying that the opposite is true. Look, that's a bridge that if we end up having to cross, we will cross. There's no religion against it, but it's not clear to me that it's a bridge we'll have to cross. Okay, great. As we speak right now, there's a number of OpenSea users who've lost their NFTs in an apparent phishing attack. If you were talking to a good friend about where to start dabbling in this world, whether it's building a company or trying to understand how to invest in this new world, what would you suggest that they do? What would be sort of first steps to someone who's like, I just keep reading about all this stuff. I have no idea what's going on, but I want to educate myself and not get left behind here. Well, so number one is you've got to get in there. And that means being comfortable with some amount of money that you're willing to think of as play money and recognize the risks associated with that money. To be clear, phishing happens all the time, Mm -hmm. which is very visible right now within crypto. It used to be that phishing would mostly go after company security data. Now you have phishing attacks because people have all of the information but your Ethereum transactions are actually visible. You can go to an mm-hmm. Etherscan and see somebody's wallet and see exactly what they have in their wallet and what the value is, and then be very pointed and going after these people, spear phishing. And so there's a lot of 
things to be careful about right now right. in crypto. That doesn't mean stay away. It just means there's a little bit of the buyer beware where you have to be careful. You have to follow all the classic security best practices of a password logger and ideally a hardware wallet. But you also have to recognize that this is still very new and it's still a little dicey. I still feel even when I do transactions, sell something on OpenSea or whatever it may be, I worry that if you don't know who the sucker is, you're the sucker, you know, like <laughs> there's, there's a lot of that. And so being careful, but play, like I have, I'm sure been taken advantage of in countless transactions, but I'm okay with that because you understand how much you're willing to lose mm -hmm. and then you're doing it to learn. So number one, I would say just start playing, get into the discords, do some transactions. It might be easier to do that on Solana with the Magic Eden right now, just because the transaction costs in Solana are so much lower than they are in Ethereum. And so it's not a comment on Solana versus Ethereum, more just you can play a lot more right now, right? Or lower, although there's a lot of layer two solutions in Ethereum that are really exciting. The Starkware team, a few others that are doing some really wonderful things. Immutable X is, is building on top of that. That's going to drive down the cost, but there's still a long way to go in that infrastructure. And so, get get going, play. And then two, if my friend was somebody who was an operator and thinking about joining a company. I would absolutely encourage them to do something in, in Web3 or crypto, depending on, on who they are, because it just feels like we are such early, early days. And I especially think that people who come from the Web2 world and are, you know, in, in a way, all of us who have been playing in crypto for as long as we have, I feel a little bit like I've been the frog being boiled you know, where the user experience is so bad. So there's so much friction. There's so much that's kind of expected of the consumer to understand and check and, and be able to read and understand things that most consumers don't. And so we've been boiled in the water and you want new consumer builders to come in, new Web2 builders to see all the places in which there's so much friction to the consumer experience and think about how do we reset that foundation in a way that makes it less foreboding for a new person to come into the space because that's absolutely what needs to happen for this next wave of crypto and Web3. And, and so that's the future I see. Well, I know that you think a lot of Web2 companies will struggle to adopt Web3. So it seems like that attrition will sort of happen naturally. Yeah, I think it's the only way. Sarah, thank you so much again for making time for this. I really appreciate this. I'm very excited for you and your growing family. And I hope that it's not too long that I see you. You are one of the last people I think I saw before the world shut down, which yeah, first, yeah. Now seems like a million years. But Well, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. <laughs> thank you. Take care. Thanks to you for listening, and thanks to Tegas for sponsoring this podcast. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you here next week.